Morning. Good to be here. Excited about just being with you guys this morning. Really good to be in heaven. And um, there are a few people I don't know, so welcome and uh, good morning. If we haven't met yet, do come and say hello afterwards. And Catherine and I and the family, we're going to be here most weeks now, if not every week. And uh, we're really excited to see what God's going to do in heaven. Really enjoyed this morning. Enjoyed the worship. Really great hearing from God, isn't it? Just just a sense of his presence and, and I'm excited because we're going to be preaching from the Bible this morning and we're going to be talking about God's presence and some of it. So um, Ed, are you okay to click on for me because I'm not very good at keeping up with my own notes. Um, so um, it's, it's mainly passages. So if you could go to the first slide because we're um, looking at our, continue our series in Exodus and we're looking at Rescued into Justice this morning. Now when I first became a Christian, um, I went on an Alpha course, which I highly recommend. Do Alpha, it's great. Um, And the first thing I wanted to know is, what are the rules? What do I need to do? What is it that is going to make me the right kind of person to be a Christian? And I've done Alpha loads of times since, and it's always the question people ask. Can I do this? Is this a sin? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is it okay to do this? And people want to know, what are the rules? And I remember becoming a Christian and thinking, right, there are... Six, six things in my life. If I sort those six things out, then I will be perfect before God. And I remember thinking, this is just going to be great. You know, God's so lucky to have me on his team now, and I'm going to just sort these things out. And, and I was looking at what the Bible taught, and I was thinking, yeah, I just need to, there's just a few areas. I'm just going to sort those things out. And, and actually, what I discovered was that there were a lot more than six, and anyone who knows me will, will know that. And and actually, it, it didn't get easier. It got harder. The harder I tried to keep the law, keep the rules, uh, the, the more depressed I got that I was unable to, uh, until I discovered grace. And uh, that was a, a wonderful discovery. And, uh, and hopefully, we will, we will discover that together this morning. So the, the bad news is, is that we're in Exodus 20, and we've got 11 chapters to cover. So Wendy, if you could lock the doors. Uh, it's about 8,500 words, I discovered. Um, we're not going to go through them all, you'll be pleased to know, but I'm going to pick out some bits as we go, and we're going to look through this next section. So just to catch you up to speed, uh, we've had the people of Israel, the Hebrews, they've been enslaved by the Egyptians, and God has come and rescued them through Moses, his mediator, the man he sent to come and, and bring them out. And so he's done that, and, and we've had, if you've been listening along, if you haven't, you can catch up, I won't go through it all now, but they're in, in essence, they're in slavery, they're enslaved, and this is a picture of who we are before we come to Jesus, that actually we are enslaved to sin, but through Jesus, God rescues us out of slavery, he brings us through the waters of baptism, in the same way the people of Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea, rescues them through that, and then takes them into a place of testing in the wilderness, and we've looked at that, and, uh, but God's presence comes and God's presence is with them and he promises to be with them. And then last week we looked at the Ten Commandments, the rules. And so we get into that. And so last week we looked at God starts to take, say, say to his people, right, I've rescued you now. And they're in this desert, in this wilderness in essence. And there's two million of them. And it's like, what do we do now? We've got out of this horrible place. We've come into this new place, which in essence is a, a place of, of trial and testing. And there's this promised land ahead, the land of milk and honey that God has said, but they're not there yet. And they come to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up the mountain along with the people of Israel. And God speaks out the Ten Commandments to Moses. And so they start to get something 
of an idea of, of what God is all about, how God wants them to live. And it's so easy to look at that and go, okay, so that's the rules. And we recognize the Ten Commandments. Most people, even Christians, people who've never been in church, would probably have some idea of some of what the Ten Commandments are. And one of the reasons for that is that our own laws of the land, particularly in the West, have been built on these Christian principles, these Israelite laws that were brought in thousands of years ago. And so we, to some extent, we know them to be good. To some extent, we know that, that there is something good about not murdering. There is no flourishing society in the world that thinks that murder is a good idea. And so these are moral laws, moral things that God says, this is how I want my people to live. And it's so easy to go, okay, so that's the Old Testament, that's the law, that's, like, that's the rules. It's like, oh, we've got to keep the rules, okay. And a bit like when I came into Christianity, it's like, oh, what are the rules? Come and tell me, and I'll try my best to be a good Christian. But actually, the people of Israel didn't see it like this. They saw this as God's grace to them. Finally, they knew what, what God thought about what was good and what was bad. And there was a sense in which throughout history before this, they knew, and, and you'll see a lot of these laws reflect back. But as we go through some of these things, this is basically an expansion. So it's almost like the Ten Commandments are the, the contents page. So you imagine reading English law, you'd probably get some summaries of different categories of law. And so as we go through the, the rest of the book of Exodus, and then you've got Leviticus, the law, it's like an expansion of what God's already said. And so you'll see this repeated um, sense throughout. So if we have a look, we'll start with, um, so just after the Ten Commandments, so we're in Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn with me um, to verse 22. And so with the Ten Commandments, I won't go over what Job said last week, but just the, the first three were in essence about worship and about honoring God. And then he introduces the Sabbath. It's like, look, this is it. Come and worship me. Come and praise me. Come and know me as the one true God. And then have a day of rest. Relax. Chill out. I want to bless you. I'm a God who blesses you. And then he brings in these other commandments about, about honoring your parents and then about how we live with one another in society. And you can see he's starting to build a structure. But what I want you to do this morning is to take your your brain, if you like, out of, of the life that you've experienced so far and imagine that you've been living under a, a really awful dictatorship. Imagine you've come out of North Korea, let's say, and you've lived under this dictator like Pharaoh. There were no rules other than whatever he said. So there was nothing to sort of pull society together other than you had the people who were in charge and then you had everyone else. And in essence, you could do whatever you wanted. And there was no, let's say, there was no police, there was no welfare system, there were no hospitals, there was no courts, there was no one to appeal to, there was no human rights, no United Nations. We have all this stuff in our background of how we see the world, and it's very easy sometimes to look upon some of the things in the Old Testament, and, and we find ourselves judging what God says, because actually we've come, we've come from a place of actually knowing what's right and wrong because of what God said. In essence, our experience already is because of what God has brought into the world through the Scriptures. And so I hope that makes sense. So what I'm trying to do is sort of we need to step back from what we already know about, about the law, if you like, of this land and go, what would it be like to have no rules? Think of Lord of the Flies, if you ever read that book. You know, the kids just have no rules. They can make them up and they end up basically trying to destroy each other. And so all of a sudden you've got this society of two million people out in the wilderness and, and God says, this is how I want you to live. I want you to flourish and I'm going to bring in some rules around that. And it wasn't the rules were not there to restrict them. Actually, they were there to give them freedom. 
And there's something of a reflection here of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are there in the presence of God. And he says to them, there's one tree in the garden that you're not to take from. But everything else is yours. And actually, if you think about it, the, the restriction of the one tree was actually freedom to do everything else. And in the same way as God gives us commands, actually it gives us freedom to do everything else. And it, it, it says what we can do and what we can't do. And, and actually, as, as parents, if you're a parent, you know with your children that, that children are best when they're disciplined, when they know what's right and wrong, when they know what's good for them. If you leave children just to work it out for themselves and say, well, you just be free, it's going to end in disaster. I mean, it happens in our house regularly. We leave them upstairs for about 10 minutes and somebody nearly dies or something gets set on fire or we're buying new carpets, something like that, because they've got just total freedom with no rules and it ends in chaos. And so actually, if we look at this, look at what God is bringing, this is God's grace to his people. That's why in Psalm 119, David, who writes, it says that, it says that your precepts are perfect that there is freedom in your law. And, and there's this sense in which he understands that it's the law that brings freedom. And so I want you to, to see that, because we live in a world where people say, no, I don't want any rules. I want to be free. That is a lie, and that does not bring freedom. And you see people enslaved to their desires every day because they don't actually know what freedom is. And so I want to say that as a kind of upfront, get our heads in the right place, because I believe God's really going to speak to us this morning. Can I pray quickly? Father God, I, I just pray for your spirit this morning. Lord, you say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God, will you bring your spirit this morning, Lord? I pray that, that anything I say, Lord, that's not of you, you'll just take away, Lord. Anything that is of you, Lord, will you put into people's hearts? Lord, I know you're good. I know your law is perfect. Lord, will we hear and receive the grace of what it is to know you and to know your words, to know scripture that you've given to us, Lord, for our blessing and our flourishing. Lord, help us as your people this morning to, to just receive joy and grace and all that we've heard this morning already. Lord, build your church this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's read together, and I'll just comment as we go. There's quite a bit to get through, but we'll, we'll work it together. So, um, Ed, if you can follow me on the, the screen behind, then hopefully we'll, we'll get the verses there. But follow them in your, your own Bibles if you've got them. So, Exodus 20, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. So he's kind of reiterating that first commandment. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Don't make idols. Don't make images of God. And so to repeat the first two commands. And he says to verse 24, Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. And so he's inviting them to make their offerings. Their sin offerings and their fellowship offerings. You know, the burnt offerings are saying, actually, God, will you burn up all my sin? Take it away from me. And the fellowship offerings to say that we are one people. We are a community together to be in fellowship with God. He's inviting them to worship him. And so before he gives them any further instructions, he says, come and worship me. Come and encounter me again. And, and it's, it's an act of grace to begin with. And so it's always grace before obedience with God. So when you become a Christian, the invitation is just come as you are. Not live like this and then I'll accept you. It's, it's come as you are. Come as you are this morning. You could be sitting there thinking, oh, if people knew what I was really like. It's like, if people knew what I was really like, you probably wouldn't be sitting here listening to me. 
But actually, I'm under God's grace. God has rescued me from that. He's delivered me from that. And even when I still sin, he, he still takes that from me. It's the promise of the gospel. And so I, I come into God's presence under his grace, not because of my obedience, but because of that, what comes out of that is I want to obey him. And so it's the same for our children again. I'll keep using children because God uses this picture, but I know my children love me when they obey me. They listen to what I say and say, Dan, I, I, I believe that you know what's best for me. I want to obey you. And, you know, one day, hopefully, that'll be true. And <laughs> I'm praying about it. But I'm saying, God, give them a heart that wants to obey me. Cause I'm, and we're teaching them about the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father, please. Honor her. You know. And, but in essence, they, they do love me. But, but actually, I really, I'll see it as they mature and as they grow up. They want to obey me. They want to respect me. They want to honor me because I love them. And because they know that I've got their best interests at heart. It's exactly the same with God. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were at our worst, that's when Christ died for you. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. That it's not about, you don't come to God with obedience. You come to God with a sacrifice of sin and thanksgiving. And God, please save me. And he does, and that's what he loves. He loves people to come to him in that way. So, Exodus 21. We can get to the laws now. Um, so it says this in verse 1. These are the laws you are to set before them. So it's God again. He's speaking to Moses to tell the people of Israel. So it begins with Hebrew servants. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door, post, uh, to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. And so in some translations you'll see the word slave and slave or servant and we've actually talked about this before about how they were enslaved to uh, Pharaoh in, in Egypt and then actually God calls them out to be his slaves and so sl- slavery is obviously one of those words particularly in this day and age where it actually can be very contentious it can be like what well, so God says that slavery is okay this is a completely different context and you need to see that, that that actually God's not here affirming the kind of slavery that we're all familiar with which is just abhorrent to God, but actually saying, no, if you've got a Hebrew sermon, this is a time there's no welfare system. You've got people that, that actually, they, they're in communities, they're in families, and, and sometimes the, the, the only property you own might be your family, and sometimes they would sell a, a daughter or you would sell yourself into slavery in order to sustain your family and to give yourself a life. And so the word servant is, is a better one, I think, for this particular context. And like it says here, he's to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he should go free. So it's not lifelong ownership. There's a sense in which God's grace is on this, and it's, it's actually an option for people to take um, and to go into, put themselves into this kind of servanthood. And likewise, it says, if a servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, there's a sense here of relationship. And so again, we need to see it in that context. This is God's grace again for community and human flourishing. And so you've got the, the sense he should take him to the door and the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. And there's something about, about God here, about us being servants of God. 
that actually when we listen to God, we use our ears to hear God and obey. The word listen and obey is actually the same word in Hebrew. And so there's a sense in which that it's like the ear is like a symbol of that obedience to the master. And Paul actually speaks in the New Testament about this. And he talks about submitting to, sorry, it's Peter, not Paul. And I get those two confused. Um, and so he talks about, you know, exactly this. He's talking about this passage. We've referred back to it about being a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In that same passage in 1 Peter, uh, he talks about obeying our earthly masters. But there is a sense that when we obey those that rule over us, we actually honor God. And so there's something good in this. There's something actually about giving glory to God, our creator, that ultimately he is the master. And so sometimes we give our service to those in power in this world. We honor the emperor. We honor those in government. And it's, it's not always a bad thing. Actually, we can show glory to God in that. And so um, next, next up is social responsibility called this. So verse 16 uh, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and he shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. And so you've got an interesting here, the thing here about, you know, about sex and, and sexual immorality and what it's like to have relationships. Again, you've got this group of people out in the wilderness and there's got to be some kind of rules about harmony in life and what makes society flourish. And so you haven't got just people sleeping together and saying, well, it doesn't really matter. Actually, no, God's saying, no, that doesn't work like that. If this happens, there are consequences. Actually, there's a, there's a cost involved here because you can't just have this, this open freedom of doing whatever you want. And so God addresses it and he speaks to them and says, no, that's, that's not to happen. And you see this happening before in Genesis and you see the disaster it brings where, where men do whatever they want. They just abuse women and, and, and can get away. And God says, no, that's wrong. I want to correct this. If you're going to do that, then actually you need to look after and be responsible for, the, for your actions, if you like. Verse 18, do not allow sorceress to live. Again, this is just like reference to idolatry again, sorcery, witchcraft. Uh, God later on in Deuteronomy 18, he talks about this. And, and basically the sorcery is just work, pagan worship to idols. You know, there's a sense in which the occult and things like that. So... Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal to be put to death. I think that just speaks for itself. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. And so no idol worship again. God doesn't want his people going back to Egypt. They came out of Egypt where it was just full of idolatry. And they used to do the most horrific things in worship to these false gods. And God says, no, I don't want that in your midst. I don't want to, dis- I let- will destroy you. So when God says it, they sound really harsh, don't they? It's like, oh, must be destroyed. But, but what else do you do with that? Because God knows that sin is like contagion. It spreads. And all of a sudden, people are starting to worship these other gods, and people are starting to, to give things to these demons that have not got their best interests at heart, that want to draw them away from God. Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I mean, that's just incredible for the time. It's like, actually, no, if you've got foreigners in your midst, you need to bless them. There is no space for racism in God's kingdom. And it's like, no, you know what it's, what it's like. You know what it's like to be a slave and to be foreigners in another land. It's like, don't allow that to creep into this society. Verse 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. 
widow and the fatherless, the, the poorest and most oppressed people in society. God cares for them. This is unbelievable when you look at all the other societies that were around them, where they had things like child sacrifice and full-on slavery and just abuse and violence and death everywhere. And you can see this from all the other cultures, what was going on, but God's saying, no, we're not going to be like this. This is a new thing I am doing. I'm creating a society that reflects who I am. You are the image bearers of God. You are going to bear my image before the other nations and show them what I'm like. This is just like a, a, an incredible thing. But again, because we know these things are all really bad and wrong, we, we kind of don't feel it in the same way. Because you think, yeah, well, that just makes good sense. Yeah. I'm like, if I was God, that's how I'd do it. It's like, now the reason we get that is because God has revealed it. Because there are plenty of other societies around the world, even today, that do not believe in these values, do not believe in this moral code. God wants to protect the weakest and the poorest in society. There are some people that would just say, even now, some people that would say, well, that's just wrong. You know, if they're the poor and the weak, you know, if we could just eradicate them, actually we could lift the rest of society, that would be a good thing for everyone else. And it's like, this is where real deep evil comes from, isn't it? And yet, actually, there's something in human nature that says, nah, do you know what, some people are just a drain on society. If we could just wipe them out, you know, it would just be good for everyone else. And we see that, and it's creeping into the West. This isn't something too far away. You see it all the time, where the dignity of humanity is just being completely undermined and devalued. We live in a society where people are pushing for that in, in high up places. And so, don't think that it can't affect us and where we are now. Then it carries on, verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people. So he's starting to talk about people's wallets. This is always a good one. Among you who is needed, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I'll hear them, for I am compassionate. I mean, again, it's just it's like, just bless people, be kind. You know, they might be your possessions, but, but actually just, just give them. Create a society where you love one another, where you flourish, where you do good to one another. You think about the New, uh, New Testament, the disciples, it's like they had everything in common. No one had need. That's the society God is building. That we share together, and it's, it's what he still wants to do today in the church. God is compassionate. 28, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. Be generous towards the things of God and what God is doing. Give to God's people, to the church. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. I'm getting that feedback from me. Um, again, God is, God is saying that actually give me your first fruits. This is a principle of trusting God and saying, no, I'm your provider. And we talked about the offering this morning. It's like, actually, no, let's, let's be a people that give God our first fruits. Let's give him the first and best. Because what it says is, no, I trust you, God. I trust you for my provision. That's why we do it. I, I love to, to be able to give to the things of God because I find that God always, always, always gives me what I need. I trust him with that. And I'm like, God, I want to I honor you with that. I want to give you my first and best because I want to show you that I believe that you provide everything I have anyway. And the Bible promises us over and over again that if we trust God with our finance, if we trust God with our property, with our, our livelihoods, and we honor him with them, that actually he will give us everything we need and more. He really does bless us through that. 
And then justice and mercy, so in uh, chapter 23 now, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Again, it's like, who'd have thought? Like, don't tell lies. You know, don't, don't get that person into trouble. Can, can you imagine a world where there's just no law, there's no police or anything like that? You're not really going to get into trouble for doing these things. So people would have just lied naturally. I mean, how many of us just lie naturally anyway? I did it the other day, I have to say, shamefully, but I, I did something stupid, and instead of going, oh, yeah, I was really stupid, I went, oh, well, I did that because I made an excuse for it. It's human nature sometimes to just defend ourselves deceitfully. And actually here it's saying, but don't do that to, to ruin someone else's life. Don't give a false witness. And again, it's in our law, isn't it? That you, you don't lie to the police. You don't bear false witness against someone when they're in court and things like that. It's a, it's a horrible thing to do. But we know this because God has revealed it to us. So it says, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Say that to our kids. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey uh, wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey or someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever heard it said, like Jesus comes and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at this at the end, but he gives the Sermon on the Mount and then he goes on to talk about, you know, you've heard it say don't murder, but I say don't even hate people. Don't lust. You know, it's like, actually, love your enemies. And it's like, oh, Jesus is saying something new. Actually, no, he's, he's saying what God said in the law. If someone hates you, that's it's all really been saying. God, Jesus is going, no, this is what it meant. The law never changed. God, this is God's grace to us. Do not, uh, well, sorry, where am I? Uh, Verse 6, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. Again, it's going there again. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Then verse 10, honoring the Sabbath. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. I guess like, who'd have thought of that? Take a day off a week. Relax. Actually, that blesses the rest of society as well. Remember when the shops used to be shut on a Sunday and people used to get a day off in the week? The Sabbath is God's blessing and again goes right back to the beginning of Scripture. On the seventh day, God rested. It was God's grace to us to give us a day off to rest and come away from work. And not only that, to know God's provision again. There is something about resting in God and Sabbathing that, that we trust God. Because actually I could work an extra day and make a bit more money or I could get some extra things done. It's like, no, actually today I'm just going to rest in God's presence and know that he's in control. It's a really good thing to get up in the morning and say, God, I am not God. And I am not in control today, but you are. The Sabbath reminds us of that. Again, it was a blessing to Israel. And then worship. We're nearly there with this. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. 
So he's given them some laws, but he's like, come on, we've got we've to party as well. I'm going to give you some more rest, and I'm going to give you some time to celebrate. And again, the Sabbath created a pattern for all their festivals. And so all the festivals fell on a Sabbath, so they put in this seven, seventh day. There was always something going to happen on the seventh day on the Sabbath. And so God created this pattern in time and space to worship God and to remember him. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time, the month of Aviv, for in the, that month you came out of Egypt. So he's talking about the Passover. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of your crops or sow you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. In other words, burn it all up. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. And so it's all about worship again and trusting in God and, and saying, actually, God, you've done it all. Burning up the offering was about burning up God, taking away our sin, removing it completely. And then into Exodus 24, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Now, did they do that? <laughs> If you know the story, and we'll, we'll get there over the, the months and years ahead, no doubt. Um, the people of Israel didn't do that, but their, their natural response to God's grace and God's mercy and God's law was, yeah, I want to obey you, God. It's like we do it as Christians. That Jesus is Lord. I love you. I worship you. And there's something good in that. It's the right response to God's grace. It's the right response to God's laws. It's actually, no, I do want to live in this way. This is the best for my life. And this is, this is why we say it. It's like when we're standing, it's like, oh, this is the way God said, yeah, God, I just want to follow you. I want to love you. I want to worship you. And we do it on a Sunday morning. You're worshiping. It's like, God, how could I ever sin? How could I ever turn my back on you? You're so good to me. And this is, this is where they're at. And, and actually, they, they needed something more to keep them going. We'll talk about that shortly. And so... He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in the bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. I mean, can you imagine how much blood there is? It's just a phenomenal scene to picture. It's just like, imagine just throwing blood over all of you this morning. And it's like there's something disgusting about it. And yet there's something absolutely incredible about it. Because we know later on that God's going to send his own sacrifice. For his blood to be poured out. When we take communion, we're drinking the blood of Jesus. That's been sacrificed for us. Being poured out over us to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so there's this wonderful picture of it. As awful and horrible as it is, but that's what God needed to bring justice for sin. He needed death. It took death. So God needed to deal with it in that way. And so Moses took half blood, put it in the bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, because this is the law that they're, they're looking at, and read it to the people. They responded, again, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. And then the next passage goes on. So the next few chapters, and we're not going to go through them all now. You'll be relieved to know um, 
because there's just so much in there, but it talks about the tabernacle. And so what the tabernacle is, is, is the temple. And so again, they're in the desert. And so God actually gives Moses, he goes up the mountain and he sees God and God speaks to him. And there's this amazing time where Moses is in, in heaven, in essence, with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And God reveals all the plans for his tabernacle. And again, it's referencing back to Eden, back in the garden, the way God made things. But it's when heaven and earth were together, were one. There was no sin separating. And then God lays out these plans. And it's like Moses has actually seen the tabernacle in heaven. And so it's very, very prescriptive. And it's worth reading through and just taking time and reading a commentary or something with it. And, but it says this in chapter 25, and it's kind of a summary of, of what he, he is asked to do. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. I find that really interesting. It's like when we say, come on, let's, let's take an offering this morning. We're not trying to extract money out of people when they're going, oh, don't, don't take money. It's like, no, we want people whose hearts want to give towards the work of God. That's what it is to be the people of God. I want to do this, God. I want to be part of this. He says, whoever's heart prompts them to give, these are the offerings you are to receive from them. And it's everything they took out of Egypt that God gave them. So it's like they didn't earn these things anyway. Everything we have, God has given us. It's gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. So these would be the, the high priestly um, clothing they'd wear. It's like they're giving all these things so that God could create this, this throne room on earth, this place actually where he could come and dwell with his people again, like he did in Eden. It's like, I want to dwell with my people. But God needs certain conditions and circumstances for that to happen. Again, for, for our good. Then let them make, this is verse 8, let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. It's that word dwell, I will tabernacle among them. That's what the tabernacle was. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so that's what he does. Moses actually gets to see the pattern that God wants to show him. And what they're doing is they're creating a place. And it's, it's not a particular place on, on earth. In essence, up the mountain, God is dwelling with, with man. In the Garden of Eden, he's dwelt with man. And he's in the pillar of cloud and the, and the fire at night. And we read that as the people of Israel were led out. They, they followed this pillar. They followed the presence of God. And so we see the, the cloud come and the fire come. And so I want to turn us to uh, the beginning of John um, in, in the New Testament. John 1. And uh, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So this is John talking about Jesus. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, the, the people of Israel. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And then in verse 14 it says, 
and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so you see that comparison again with Exodus 25. We just read, let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And so you, you may, if you know your New Testament, Jesus talks about destroy this temple. He's talking about his tabernacle, his temple. Destroy it and I'll rebuild it again in three, in three days. It's great offense to the people of Israel. They're like, how can you destroy this temple that was built in 40 years? Because eventually the, they move out of the desert into the promised land and Solomon builds the temple where the presence of God comes. But all of these things are pictures of what is to come, of Jesus coming and dwelling with his people. And so you see the pillar of cloud and the fire. And what happens is when Jesus dies and resurrects, there's the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. The presence of God comes and falls on his people. Fire, like tongues of fire on their heads. And so the rest of Exodus goes on describing the building of this tabernacle and the tent of meeting, which later becomes temple of said. And, um, and all of this is pointing towards God's presence with us, which is what he wants. He said, I want to be with my people. And I need to make a way for that to happen. And so what's our application from all of this? You might be thinking, where's he going with all of this? Um, is that we are the people of God. Is that if you have put your trust in Jesus, all those promises for God's people, God has never failed his covenant. People have. People have disobeyed. But God has promised that he will never leave us, never forsake us, and he keeps coming through and through and through. And eventually he sends his own son to fulfill all of those promises. So Jesus comes and lives and fulfills the law. And so he says this in Matthew 5, verse, uh, I think it's 17. Do not think, it's not on the screen behind me, but it's on, but do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so it's not like the God of the Old Testament where he had all the rules and then Jesus comes and now we can just do what we want. It's like, no, Jesus says, no, I haven't come to abolish that. I've come to fulfill it because you couldn't. Because we all fell short. And so the law is good. The law is meant for human flourishing. And there's 613 commands that are going to come out of this, this Old Testament section. And actually, all of them are good. God has done it because he wanted to bless us. And then we get to the New Testament. Jesus comes and he fulfills that. And you would think, well, does that mean there are no commands in the New Testament? Whereas, in fact, there are over 800. Things like love one another. Pray for your enemies. You know, he reinforces everything that's said. But what changes is, is that when Jesus comes, we no longer have to go into the temple to meet with God in his presence. Because what happens is, is that we become temples of God's presence. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. It says in Ezekiel, I was just reading it before, that it says, I'll give them a, I will take out the heart of stone. Think about the tablets of stone that the Ten Commandments were written on. I said, I'll give them a heart of flesh. 
so that we can obey God from our hearts. And so when you become a Christian, what happens is that the law is written on your hearts. And so you want to obey God. That's the change. And it's not that you have to obey. You get to obey him. So instead of you shall not murder, it's you shall not murder. You wouldn't want to. You're my people. You shall not cover. You shall not desire things that I've not given you. Yeah, I don't want to desire things God hasn't given me. I want to be grateful for what I've got. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not lust. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to lust. Because God's written it on my heart. And he's written it on your heart. And we need the presence of God, the presence of his Holy Spirit to do that. And so as we come to finish, I just, I'd like us to stand really just as a, as a response to that. And just before Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law, he talks about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And that's who the church are called to be. That's who we are to be, to heaven. It's not the earth's fault. It's not society's fault that society is decaying. It's not the house's fault that the lights are not on. But actually it is the calling of the church to be salt and light to a sick and dying world. This is what God was doing with his people. And so I want to encourage, I'm just going to read these words. And I want, if you're a Christian this morning, just think about this, about your own life, about how you can bring salt and light into the world around you. And it says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is who the church is meant to be. It's who we want to be. If God is at work in you, if you put your faith in Jesus and invited his spirit to dwell in you, that's the kind of people we want to be, isn't it, church? We want to go out into the world and be salt and light. We don't want to moan about society and how bad it's getting and the decay. It's like blaming a piece of meat for going off because we didn't put it in the fridge. Or we didn't put salt on it, actually, is the right (laughs) example. So let me pray over us this morning. Father, I thank you that that you've never changed, Lord, that your law was always good. You want us to flourish, Lord. Freedom is knowing your law. Freedom is knowing you, God, is knowing Jesus. You came to give us life and life in all its fullness. So I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, will you come? We want your presence. We need your presence, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you come now and fill people's hearts, Lord. Lord. We know we've got sin and we've got uncleanliness, Lord, that you need to take away from us, Lord, but you've done that on the cross. Lord, we receive your sacrifice, your blood poured over us, Lord. We've sung about it. So, Lord, help us to walk freely. Lord, in true freedom, Lord, to obey you, to be slaves to our master in heaven. Well, thank you that heaven and earth have come back together again because of you, Jesus, that you humbled yourself and you came down and made yourself a servant. Lord, that you fulfilled the commandments in every way that we could. And yet you've given us your spirit now so that we can live for you. Lord, you've made us free. 
pray for us this morning. Lord, will people know that freedom? Maybe for the first time, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not given their life to you, Jesus, will you come and speak to them now? If that's you, you can just, just repent in your heart. Just say, I want to turn away from my life. I want to turn away from the things that rob me of freedom, that rob me of joy. And I want to turn to you, Jesus, and make you Lord and say, Lord, I want to obey you. So as if we believe in our heart, with our tongues that Jesus is Lord Lord help us to make you Lord help us to put you on the throne of our lives and to be salt and light in this sick and dying world to trust you Lord that we can step out Lord that we can stop decay Lord will you use this church in heaven Lord in Chichester and Bogner to to go and do good to be good not to be pushed back by the world Lord you say that gates of hell will not prevail against your church. You will build your church. Do it the right way around. God, you build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord. We want to be your church that march through the gates of hell, Lord, on the offensive, Lord, in love, in peace, in humility, in kindness, forgiving our enemies, Lord, those who persecute us and hate us, Lord, will we pray for them like you tell us? to give up the things in this life that rob us of joy to stop pursuing desires in this world Lord but pursue a love for you a deeper intimacy with you just pray come Holy Spirit help us to be worshippers of the living God thank you Lord that heaven has come down Lord through Jesus that you came down to rescue us Lord we stand in your presence now come Holy Spirit fill us in Jesus name Let's worship him.